cool. Okay. So it's the chapter six. Some people probably maybe need a okay, here. So what happened last week? So very okay. So we've we've gone through Esther's queen. Haman's decided he wants to kill all the Jews because Mordecai won't bow to him. Mordecai's told Esther, "You need to go and see the king. Tell him what's happened. Beg for our lives." And Esther says, "That's crazy. If I go before the king without being asked, I could be executed. I could be killed." But Mordecai says, "You're going to die anyway." If you don't go, right? So just go. Pay the right price. Put yourself in God's hands. Do the right thing and trust him to look after you. You've got nothing to lose. And so she says, okay, go pray and fast for three days. All the Jews in Susa, me and my servants will pray and fast as well. And then in three days, I will go and see the king. And if I die, if I, die I die. I'm in God's hands. Cool. That was up to chapter four. What happened in chapter five last week? She goes up to him. Phew. Correct. Yes. She goes and hangs out somewhere where he'll be able to see her. And he invites her in and says, what do you want? I'll give you anything pretty much. And what does she say? <laughs> you and Haman come and have dinner with me. Come to my banquet. So he says, okay. Calls Haman. They go to Queen Esther's banquet. So much. Let's have another one. At the banquet, he knows she hasn't risked her life just to have dinner with him. And so he says to her again, what do you want, Esther? Like, what, what's going on here? Tell me, I'll give you anything. I'll do anything you want. And she says, Come tomorrow. I'll, we have another banquet tomorrow. If you come, then I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's what's up. Okay. Then what happens? Why? So Haman, yes, Haman leaves the banquet. How's Haman feeling when he leaves the banquet? Pretty good. Joyful, bouncing step, super happy. Things are going well. And then? Then he sees Mordecai. And what does Mordecai refuse to do? Yeah, doesn't bow, doesn't even look scared. And this infuriates Haman. So he goes home. His wife's there, calls over his friends, and boasts about every, all that he has, all of his wealth, all of his sons, how powerful he is. And even the queen invited him, just him and the king, to have dinner together. But but what did he say? All of this fails to satisfy me. Everything I have, still I'm not happy. Why? As long as I have to look at Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And so what does his family and his wife say to do? 
Correct. He says, build a massive gallows. We talked about that. That probably wasn't a, like a hangman noose, 25 meters high. Most likely, it was just a massive stake that they were going to impale Mordecai on. He says, get that set up tonight, tomorrow morning, go see the king, ask him if you can execute Mordecai, and then you can go and enjoy the banquet with Esther, knowing that Mordecai is out of the way. And so Haman's like, sounds like a good idea. And that was the end of chapter 5. So now everything gets very serious. Mordecai's life is not just at stake in 11 months' time when Haman's decree comes up and all, they're all going to kill all the Jews. His life is at stake right now, tomorrow morning. Okay, so then, let's see what happens in chapter 6. Who wants to read? Throughout that night, the king was unable to sleep, so he asked for the book containing the historical records to be bought to be bought as the records were being read in the king's presence it was found written that mordecai had disclosed that uh, big thanar and teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance had plotted to assassinate king ahasuerus so throughout that night what night Yeah, the night, that, the night that Mordecai had set up the big pole for impaling, that, that Haman had set up the big pole for, for impaling Mordecai, the night before Haman's going to come and speak to the king and ask to have Mordecai executed, that night. That night, the king was unable to sleep. The Hebrew phrase there is actually quite funny. It's nadash nat hamelech. So, Shanat is to sleep, sleep. Ha-melech, ha Melech is king, Ha is the, the king. So, this is the sleep of the king. And in that word, Nada, it actually means to run away. And so, the king's sleep ran away from him, couldn't sleep. Okay. Is that a coincidence? That that night, on that night, the king was unable to sleep. No chance. It's said that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And clearly there's stuff going on here. And in fact, the, the entire future of the Jewish people changed on that night because this king couldn't sleep. And that happens, there's actually a bunch of times in the Bible where God changes the course of Israel's history through the sleep of a Gentile king. Can you think of any other times? Joseph, yep, correct. Pharaoh has dreams, terrify him during the night. Nobody can interpret them. Calls for Joseph, and Joseph does. And that's, that's how Israel ends up in Egypt. Another person? It's also dreams. What? Solomon, like, he 
Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> there was also... Yeah, who? Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, that was another another big moment like that. Similar, similar situation. And in both cases, you have, so you have a Gentile king who can't sleep or is affected during their night. And the result is a Jewish man gets elevated to, to prominence. And so anyway, it's kind of cool. So here, king can't sleep. And so what does he do when he can't sleep? Yeah. Now the kings in Persia couldn't read. They didn't think it was a worthwhile thing to bother wasting their time learning to read because they got servants that can read to them. They spend their time learning to like shoot arrows well and stuff like that, fight well, be good kings. Yeah. So anyway, so he calls for some some of his servants to come and read a story for him. Kind of. Actually, he asked them to read the the historical records. Basically, do you guys know the books of Chronicles in the Bible, First and Second Chronicles? It's kind of like Chronicles, but the Persian edition, which is quite a good choice, because I don't know if you've read any of the books, Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. <laughs> kind of. They're very important books, very historically useful, but they're not always the most exciting to read. So this is an example. Jehoshaphat, Je- Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi. Later, King Jehoshaphat of Judah made an alliance with King Ahaziah of Israel, who did evil. They agreed to make large seagoing merchant ships. They built the ships in Ezion Geber. Eliezer, son of Dodavahu from Marashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, because you made an alliance with Ahaziah, the Lord will shatter what you made. The ships were wrecked and unable to go to sea. Jehoshaphat passed away and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. His son, Jehoroboam, Jehoram, replaced him as king. It's kind of, it's just recording history, right? It's recording what happened during these people's reigns. Now, these, this is the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, the Chronicles of the kings of Israel and Judah. But other ancient civilizations had similar records. And that included the Persians. Herodotus, again, Greek historian writing about 50 years after Xerxes, he writes that when, whenever Xerxes, as he sat beneath the mountain, so this is, if you remember, he goes to battle Xerxes against the Greeks, and they end up with a navy, naval battle at a place called Salamis, and they get hammered. The Greeks, like, just wipe them out pretty much. But this is that battle. Xerxes is apparently up on a mountain watching the battle unfold. And Herodotus says that uh, whenever he saw one of his own men achieve some feat in the battle, he inquired who did it, and his scribes wrote down the captain's name and his father and his city of residence. So it's just keeping a record of what's going on in this battle, who they need to reward later or promote or whatever, right? And this is, this is a guy called Diodorus of Sicily. So he was like about 400 years later. But he's quoting a guy called Theseus, who was a Greek historian during the reign of Xerxes' great-grandson, Artaxerxes II. And Diodorus says that Theseus says 
that from the royal records in which the Persians, in accordance with a certain law of theirs, kept an account of their ancient affairs, he carefully investigated the facts about each king. And when he had composed a history, he published it to the Greeks. And so, again, this Stesius, we don't actually have any. He basically wrote a history of Persia. He was a Greek, but he wrote a history of Persia. We don't have any copies of that left, but there are a whole bunch of other writers who reference, who like quote from his history. That's how we know it existed. And he said that the way that he created that history of Persia was by going through the Persians' chronicles, these historical records, the records of the king, which is what, um, which is what Xerxes is reading from. Now, unfortunately, there are very few of the Persian chronicles that have survived to today. But there are some, uh, they're, they're likely to have been quite similar to the Babylonian chronicles from the Babylonian kingdom before the Persians, and a lot of those have survived. One of them is this, the Jerusalem chronicle. It's this ancient tablet that they have in the British Museum. <laughs> well, at least it's somewhere. Uh, and on the back of this, yeah, on the reverse side, it records this. It says, in the seventh year, the month of Kislimu, the king of Akkad, and Akkadia was the ancient name for Babylon. So this is actually Nebuchadnezzar that it's talking about. A couple lines earlier, it actually names him as Nebuchadnezzar. It says, in the seventh year, the month of Kislimu, the king of Akkad, Nebuchadnezzar, mustered his troops, marched to the Hatti land, which is a region in the Middle East, that they used to call Hatti land, and besieged the city of Judah, that's Jerusalem. And on the second day of the month of Adaru, he seized the city and captured the king. He appointed there a king of his own choice, received its heavy tribute, and sent to Babylon. This battle where Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem, captures the king, appoints a new king, is actually recorded in one of the Bible's chronicle books, Second Kings, where it says at that time, the generals of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched to Jerusalem and besieged the city. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to the city while his generals were besieging it. King Jehoiakim of Judah, along with his mother, his servants, his officials, and his eunuchs, surrendered to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took Jehoiakim prisoner, and the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king of king in Jehoiakim's place, and he renamed him Zedekiah. It's just quite cool. So you have this event recorded in the Bible, and you have the same event recorded on these like ancient Babylonian chronicles. Kind of cool. But anyway, like I said, unfortunately, we don't have any of those. But it's those records, those like historical records, these chronicles that Xerxes asked to be read for him on that night when the king's sleep ran away from him. And it just so happened that out of all the chronicles in the 12 years of Xerxes' reign so far that they decided to read, they read the part about Mordecai from about four or five years ago. We read it at the end of chapter two. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, 
who protected the entrance, basically protected the king's bedroom, is what we think that means, became angry and plotted to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the conspiracy, he informed Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in Mordecai's name. The king then had the matter investigated, and finding it to be so, had the two conspirators hanged on a gallows, and it was then recorded in the Daily Chronicles in the king's presence. And that happens to be what the king reads this night when he can't sleep. Okay. What a coincidence. Verse 3. Who wants to read verse 3? Pretty much. Well, it's a good way, like, if you're trying to get to sleep. <laughs> Probably be a good thing to read. Yeah. But anyway, so he reads about this event that, like, happened four or five years ago. It seemed a bit random at the time. Pops up again now. Who wants to read verse 3? Just verse 3. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king reads about this great thing that was done for him, right? Mordecai saved his life. And so he says, Well, what great thing did I do for Mordecai? It kind of sounds to me like he's you know, wanting to feel good about himself, that he rewarded Mordecai so highly for this great thing that he'd done. What great honor was bestowed on Mordecai because of this? And he's told? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Not a thing. Ouch. What's made even worse is that in the Persian society, if you, were, if you did something that caused the king to reward you, you actually became like, it was kind of like being knighted. You became a special class of citizen in the empire. You were one of the royal benefactors. Herodotus, again, says the king's benefactors, they, had a, they actually had a name. They were the, whatever that is, orasange, something, in the Persian language. They had a distinct name, these people who the king had rewarded. And so Mordecai should have been an orasange. He should have had special privileges in the kingdom. But five years has passed. And nothing's been done for him. And so, if you're counting, this is another coincidence that I think isn't a coincidence. We had, the king couldn't sleep. What a coincidence. He asked the chronicles to be read when he couldn't sleep. Second coincidence. Happens to be reading the part of the chronicles that talks about Mordecai saving his life. Third coincidence. And then the fourth coincidence? What? What? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Mordecai wasn't rewarded for saving the king's life. And so in a sense, he owes Mordecai a debt, right? That's a pretty good time for Mordecai to cash that. <laughs> cash that one in. Now, we said this at the time, but if you saved the king's life and nobody took any notice, how are you going to be feeling, do you think? Yeah? Pretty disappointed? A bit resentful, maybe? Doesn't, he's not even grateful what I did for him? 
And it's probably even worse when you see other people like Haman around you getting rewarded for, yeah, who knows what, less. And that's probably not something that's completely like unfamiliar to you guys. You'll probably all be in situations where you do the right thing. You do something good and nobody seems to care. Maybe you always do the right thing. You always try to be good and nobody cares. And then there are other people, maybe like your brothers, who are always doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and they do some little thing the right way and everybody makes a big deal out of it, but nobody cares that I'm always doing the right thing. And so it's easy to grow like bitter, resentful, to be like, life's not fair, life isn't fair. And to be like, why bother doing this in the first place? Why bother doing the right thing? Why being good? Nobody even cares. In a little bit, we'll look at a psalm that talks a lot about that. But it's really important to remember that as Christians, like, we don't do good things. We don't do good. We don't do the right thing for rewards, to be rewarded by people. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, irrespective of if anybody's going to notice. And we have this promise that we've looked at this before. Well, we have this promise that if we do the right thing, if we do good because it's the right thing to do, not to get a reward, but just because it's the right thing to do, that God will reward us. That even if nobody else sees what we're doing, God sees and he cares and he will reward us for it. And we've looked at these before. Paul says, whatever you're doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people. Because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward to serve the Lord Christ. And then in Ephesians, he says, obey with enthusiasm as though serving the Lord and not people. Because you know that each person, whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. So what's he saying? What attitude are we supposed to have? How are we supposed to think about the things that we do? Yeah, exactly. The idea is that like in your mind, whatever it is you're doing, you imagine that you're doing it for Jesus. Not for your mom, or for your teacher, or for your friends. You're doing it for Jesus. And what that means is that the person that is, going, that is responsible for rewarding you, for caring what you did, it's not your mom, your teacher, your friends. It's Jesus. Yeah? And Paul didn't make that promise up. It comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus said, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And so that's the promise that we have, is that Jesus is coming, and that he will reward you, even if nobody else does, even if nobody else cares. So that's the one side of it. Like, if you're in that situation, if you're 
yeah, if you're in that situation, the one thing to remember is that God's the one that you're actually serving and he will reward you even if nobody else does. The other side of it is we also have no idea how God will use the events of today in our lives in his plan tomorrow. At the time when Mordecai has saved the king's life and nobody's noticed, nobody's cared, it would have been, he would have been justified in feeling hard done by and being upset. But now, four or five years later, starting to see that there's a reason for it, right? That it wasn't an accident, that whatever the actual reason was for Mordecai not being rewarded, which could have been just like, bureaucratic, the bit of paper got lost somewhere and nothing happened. It could have been anti-Semitism, could have been ignored because he was Jewish, don't know. Whatever the reason was, it doesn't really matter. The important thing is God is actually in control of this. He had a purpose for it. And as we've looked at in Romans 8.28, this is an example of God working all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so God had a plan in all of this. Mordecai going unrewarded was a crucial part of his plan for saving his people. So what did Mordecai have to do in that moment? So he saved the king, a day passes, a week passes, a month passes, nothing's happened. What does Mordecai have? What should Mordecai be doing? Telling himself. Do you reckon? When his brain's kind of going, this is so unfair. Why am I even like serving this guy? Doesn't even care about like I saved his life. He's elevating people like Haman, who's a monster proud and arrogant. Yeah, he's just got to tell himself, right? Trust God in this. That there might be a plan for it. And that worst case scenario, God saw what I did and he's going to reward me. Anyway, okay, so that was the fourth coincidence. Here comes another coincidence. Who wants to read? Verses four and five. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to to suggest that the king hand Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So surprise, surprise. What a coincidence, right? Right after the king has not been able to sleep, has been reminded that Mordecai saved his life and discovered that Mordecai went unrewarded for saving his life. Who arrives? Haman arrives. Of course, what a coincidence. Now, what had Haman arrived to do? 
He's asked him to kill Mordecai. He's, he's arrived to ask the king if he can have Mordecai executed. Bad timing? <laughs> yeah, about the worst possible timing, right? But it's also great. Like the irony's delicious. Now, notice how eager he is, right? This is probably still pretty early in the morning. The king is like, well, it's, you get the impression it's still very early in the morning. And so Haman like, could not wait to get this done. The book of Proverbs has a whole lot of like warnings against being hasty. What is hasty? Rushing, yeah. It's dangerous to have zeal without knowledge. And the one who acts hastily makes poor choices. What zeal? Yeah, it's kind of dry. It's like passion, like energy, like I just want to get this done, right? I want to do all of these things. And you, yeah, yeah. But you actually don't know what you're doing. So you just make a mess. So zeal without knowledge is dangerous. And the one who acts hastily, who rushes, makes bad decisions. Proverbs 21 says, The plans of the diligent lead only to plenty. What's diligent? Probably a little bit of all those things. Yeah, you probably look up a dictionary definition. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's working hard, working carefully, and like keeping on working, not giving up. Um, you're really responsible. People can trust you with stuff because you're not going to like, yeah, get distracted or whatever. You're really diligent. You work hard, leads only to plenty, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And then in Proverbs 29, it says, you've seen someone who is hasty in his words, who speaks quickly without thinking about what he's saying. And he says, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Because, yeah, talking. Anyway, so there's a lot of warnings in, uh, in the book of Proverbs about being hasty. And I've certainly found this in my own life. You guys know the phrase, sleep on it? Super useful. Very, very true. I've learned, I've learned to do that with time. If you're typing an angry, emotional message late at night, do not hit send. Sleep on it. Wait until the morning. See if you still feel like saying that. Because there's a whole lot of times when I've woken up in the morning and felt incredibly stupid. Why did I think that was a good thing to say, right? A good idea. And so I've learned to like, yeah, in those moments, go, nah, just hold on. See if, it, see if you still feel this way in the morning. The other, other, other situations is like where I really want to buy something. And I'm convinced, like I desperately, desperately want this thing. And my, my, my instinct is just to like impulse, just click buy now. But again, particularly if it's expensive, I've learned to like wait a week or two and just see. See if I still want this thing in a week or two. And very often, I don't actually. Like, as convinced as I was at the time that this is something I needed and that would change my life, a week later, I'm like, eh, I don't actually need that. And I'm really glad that I didn't waste a whole lot of money on it. So, anyway. There's a lot of value in sleeping on it and not acting hastily. And also, I get the sense that Haman could really have benefited from a copy of Proverbs because there's a lot of useful advice in here for him. And for us. Okay, so Haman arrives. King says, good timing. Bring him in. 
So, verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Oh my. So we looked at these last week. Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, before destruction, the heart of a, prou- a person is proud, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, a person's pride will bring him low, but one who has a lowly spirit will gain honor. I also read this funny quote by Benjamin Franklin. It's like one of the founders of America. It says, he who falls in love with himself will have no rivals. Why is that? Yeah. Pretty much nobody wants to love somebody who loves themselves. Yeah. Anyway, so Haman is clearly completely obsessed with himself. And when the king says, what should I do for somebody that I want to honor? Haman thinks, he must be talking about me, right? Who else would he be thinking about? So he makes a complete fool of himself. Now, how would you answer the king? The king says to you, what should I do for somebody that I want to honor? And you think, that's me. What do you want the king to do for you? A big feed. King's feast and a whole lot of land. Did you say a Lamborghini? Okay, a nice car. Anything else? Helicopter. This is like 500 BC, but... Gold. Nice house, gold. Build me a ferment. Maybe a big sphinx with your face. Come out here. Okay, let's see what let's see what Haman wants. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So, have you heard the phrase, What do you get a man who's got everything? No. <laughs> that, that is one of the answers, yeah. Haman has all the money he needs. Back in chapter 3, he offered the king 10,000 talents of silver, right? in order to have all the Jews murdered. So we get the sense that he was immensely wealthy. He has a house. He has a family. He's more powerful than anybody besides the king. What does Haman want? So 
What does he? He wants people to love him. He wants people to love him and respect him and think he's important, right? That despite all of his wealth and power, he doesn't appear to have been somebody that people respected, that they looked up to, that they would want to follow. Which, yeah, is not, not very surprising to me based on what we've seen about him. Anyway, so he makes a list, a list of things that he thinks will make people respect him and love him. He wants to be dressed in a robe that the king himself has worn. Now, normally that would be forbidden. You can't be wearing a king's clothes. But apparently it could be allowed sometimes. There's quite a funny story uh, recorded by a guy called Plutarch. This is Artaxerxes. So again, this is Xerxes' great-grandson. And it says that he was out hunting once, and this guy called Terabazus pointed out that the king's coat was torn. And he asked what was to be done. And when Terabazus replied, put on another for yourself, but give this one to me. So the king's coat is torn. This guy points it out, your coat's torn. The king says, what should I do about it? The guy says, you put on a new one, give that one to me. And the king did so saying, I give this to you, Terabazus, but I forbid you to wear it. Not allowed to be wearing the king's clothes, but you can have it if you want. You can put it up on your wall. Terabazus paid no attention to this command, being not a bad man, but rather lightheaded and witless. And he had once put, at, put on the king's coat and decked himself with gold necklaces and women's ornaments of royal splendor. Everybody was indignant. Everybody was really angry because this is forbidden. You can't do this. But the king apparently laughed and said, I'll let you wear your jewelry like a woman and my robe like a madman. Anyway, so in certain circumstances, you could wear the king's clothes if he gave permission. Haman wants to be dressed in robe that the king himself has worn. He wants to ride on a horse that the king himself has ridden. And apparently this is a, a horse with like a headdress or something that makes it official, a royal horse. He wants to be dressed by an important noble. And then he wants that noble to lead him through the city on the horse calling out, announcing to everybody, this is the man that the king wants to honor. Which is a bit sad, I think. Remember, why is Haman there? He wants to kill Mordecai. Who is the, Morde who is the king thinking about? Mordecai. What do you think Mordecai will think of these things? getting dressed in the king's robe, riding on the king's horse, being paraded through the city. Lit. <laughs> I don't know. The impression I get from Mordecai is I don't think he'll be very impressed by these things. He could probably imagine other, other ways that he would prefer to be rewarded. Yeah, maybe a house. Okay, so next, verses 10 and 11. The king then said to Haman, go quickly, take your clothing and your horse, just as you have described, and do as you indicated to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Don't neglect a single thing of all that you have said. So Haman took the clothing and the horse, and he clothed Mordecai. He led him about on a horse throughout the plaza of the city. 
calling before him, so shall it be done to the man whom the king wishes to honour. Plot twist. <laughs> do, you know, do you know that one? Well, 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 how the turntables. <laughs> or as David said, very unironically in Second uh, Samuel, how the mighty have fallen. King says to Haman, who's there to ask to have Mordecai killed, great, go and do everything you've just said to Mordecai. I cannot imagine the shame and the awkwardness. Can you imagine him having to dress Mordecai and Mordecai having to be dressed by Haman? I also wonder what people in the city thought seeing Haman, who they knew had organized to have all the Jews murdered because of Mordecai, and now he's walking Mordecai through the street saying, this is a man the king wants to honor. What his face looked like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit more irony in here. The king says, do this for Mordecai the Jew. That phrase, Mordecai the Jew, has actually only been used once so far. It was last chapter, in chapter 5, when Haman said, all this fails to satisfy me so long as I have to see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So he's using it derogatory, right? And he wants to have victory over this Mordecai the Jew. It's used now shows up here, and it shows up another four times. And in each case, it's Mordecai now having victory over Haman. But I think it like echoes back to this comment by Haman that nothing he has satisfies him as long as Mordecai the Jew is sitting at the gate. What if he's just not sitting at the gate? Well. What He was before he was dressed in the king's robes by Haman. Now, yeah, what is Mordecai? How's Mordecai feeling about all of this? Do you think? Do you think he felt special? (laughs) (laughs) The dramatic irony is like wonderful, and I he might have enjoyed seeing Haman's face a little bit, the look of shame. But I also think this is probably the last thing he was interested in, particularly in the circumstances. But it's possible, hopefully, he's starting to see, remember back in chapter 4, he told Esther, relief and deliverance will come from somewhere. Yeah? He knew that God was going to intervene and was going to save the Jewish people. And it's possible that if he's you know, if his eyes are open, that he's starting to see that happening here. Table's turning. There's a proverb, well, it's the proverb we've looked at a whole bunch of times. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. And that's, that's what's ha- what Haman is starting to experience here. Proud Haman. And yeah, now he's experiencing disgrace. I said earlier that there's this psalm that I think is 
I love it. We've looked at it a few times, but I think it's so beautiful and relevant to this. It's written by one of the worship leaders in the temple under David and Solomon, a guy called Asaph. And this is my translation of that psalm. He says, There is no question that God is good to Israel and to those who have pure hearts. But as for me, I had almost fallen. I had nearly slipped. Because when I saw the success wicked people have, I became jealous of arrogant people. There's no struggle in their death. They stay strong. They aren't plagued with difficulties like other people. And so they wear pride like a chain around their neck and violence like clothes. Their eyes bulge with fat. They have more than their hearts can desire. They speak mockingly and wickedly, arrogantly threatening violence. They speak with their mouths up in heaven, their tongues walking across the earth. And so their people come back and drink in their wealth. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High really know? You see, this is how wicked people live. They're totally relaxed and get even richer. Surely I've cleaned my heart and washed my hands for nothing. I've been plagued every day and punished every morning. But if I'd said so, I would have betrayed your generation of children. When I tried to understand all of this, it was too painful for me. That could absolutely have been Mordecai two chapters ago, three chapters ago, right? When he's done the right thing, he's kept his heart pure, he's washed his hands, he's done the right thing, and what's he get for it? Persecution, yeah. Death. Meanwhile, this proud, arrogant man, Haman, is elevated to the highest position in the kingdom. You know, what's this all for? Why am I wasting my time? He could have become jealous of Haman. But the psalm isn't finished and neither is the story. Asaph carries on. He says, all of that was how I was feeling. But then... I entered God's holy place. He came into the temple. And then I understood their future. You've put them in slippery places. You will throw them down and they'll be destroyed suddenly. Just like when someone wakes up from a dream, you will hate what they've done when you rise up, Lord. My heart was bitter and my stomach in pain. I was so stupid and ignorant. I was like an animal in front of you. Nevertheless, I'm always with you. You've been holding my right hand. You will guide me with your advice and afterwards you're going to take me to glory. Who have I got in heaven? And there is no one on earth that I want besides you. My body and heart breaks, but God provides strength to my heart and he will be my most valuable treasure forever. Those who are far away from you will die. You've destroyed everyone who isn't faithful to you, but it's good for me to come close to God. I've made the sovereign Lord the place I go for protection as I speak about everything he's done. Cool psalm. I love it so, so much. And what you see here is like so often we're judging. Mordecai is back there in chapter two and he's judging his situation then to Haman's situation then. And he's saying, this sucks. This isn't fair, right? You're judging a moment. you you're judging you at this moment in time to somebody else in this moment of time. But you have no idea what's happening in five years or one year or like a day. You know, everything can change in a moment. 
Less than 12 hours ago, everything's going Haman's way. And Mordecai's about to die, right? But God has put them in slippery places. Everything can change in a moment. And so we just have to be patient, right? We have to trust that God's in control. Keep our eyes on Jesus and enter into his presence. Because when you're in the presence of God, whether it's in worship, whether it's in his word, whether it's here in church, or whether it's sitting in your room at home, everything else, you gain perspective. The way that things look to you before changes when you're in the, in the presence of God. And all those troubles and things that seem like such a big deal, when you look at it in the context of eternity and you understand that you've got a whole of eternity ahead of you, where all of God, where God can like resolve all of these things, they look very different. The fact that the guy next to you got a free chocolate bar, right? Who cares? You've got God and you've got him for eternity. Okay. Okay. Verses 12 to 12 and 13. You can read that. Anybody, please. This is the aftermath. Twelve and thirteen, yeah. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. So, this is over. They finished marching around the city. What happens? What does Mordecai do? Mordecai. Just goes back to what he's doing. Like I said, I, I feel like this is probably just a nuisance to him and a bit <laughs> annoying. He goes back to what he was doing, sitting at the gate, praying and begging God to save him and to save the, the Jewish people. Haman? Covers his head with a veil, which you'd normally do if you're mourning the death of somebody. What's died? <laughs> Haman's pride has died. And he rushes home, utterly ashamed. Who's at home? His wife and all of his friends. The same friends who last night told him, in the morning, go to the king, get Mordecai executed. Why do you think they're at his house? And then? Yeah, I think they were probably there for the show. They were there to watch what happened to Mordecai. What they weren't, apparently, was out in the city, seeing what went on. And so Haman comes back and tells them everything. What do they say? What's their reply? Yeah. Basically, writing on the wall, right, Daniel, Daniel 5, like, Haman has begun to fall, 
to Mordecai. And as far as they're concerned, because you've got to remember, like, the Persians are very superstitious. They believed in omens and signs. And from their perspective, the sign was pretty clear. Mordecai's going to win this one. Now, there's something quite interesting in, in, in what they say. There's like an, there's a, there's a condition underlying their conclusion. So they conclude, you're going to fall to Mordecai. But there's an if. What's the if? If he's Jewish. If this Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is Jewish, you won't prevail against him. You're going to fall. What relevance does Mordecai's ethnicity have to his beating Haman? Yeah? I think sounds good. What did you say? <laughs> God, yeah. This to me is another place where like you have God implied in the story, but he's missing, right? He's not actually there. If, if he's Jewish, who cares if he's Jewish? What difference does that make? Unless, of course, you've heard about the Jewish God, right? Which kind of reminds me, you guys did Rahab. On, were you? Yeah, you did, yeah, 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 you did Rahab. So you'll know this passage. Sorry. Imagine what this passage. Who is Rahab? Who is Rahab? <laughs> she was a prostitute. Where was she living? Wall of? China. No. No. Jericho. She was, she was a Gentile. She was a Philistine living in the city of Jericho. When? You haven't got that. Okay. This is where Joshua and the Israelites are coming to conquer the land of Canaan, right? And they're coming to Jericho, this huge city with a massive wall that's completely impenetrable, right? And they get in there and they meet this lady called Rahab. And this is what Rahab says to her. I know the Lord is handing this land over to you. We're all terrified of you. All who live in the land are cringing before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you left Egypt, and how you annihilated the two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, on the other side of the Jordan. When we heard the news, we lost our courage, and no one could even breathe for fear of you. For the Lord your God is, in, is God in heaven and on earth below. And the rest of the story, they save her, and she becomes... Okay, 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 yeah, sorry. We'll leave, that for, we'll leave that for when you teach on it. Cool. Okay, but yeah, so this I think is kind of the similar thing. Haman's friends probably have heard the stories too about this Jewish God. Maybe what he did in Egypt, right? When he brought the Israelites out. Maybe what he did in the land of Canaan when Joshua took it over. Maybe what he did not that long ago when Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, right? The first Persian king. That was the, the handwriting on the wall where God shows up and tells Belshazzar, it's over for you. So maybe they've heard these stories. Now, 
they're starting to think, well, maybe those stories are true. Maybe that God of the Jews is actually, the stories we've heard about him are true. And if that's the case, you're in trouble, right? You, in trying to get rid of Mordecai and the Jewish people, you've essentially stuck your finger in God's eye. And there's actually verses that, where God says that, that Israel are the apple of his eye, the pupil of his eye. And what happens if somebody tries to stick their finger at your pupil? It hurts. <laughs> it's very sensitive, right? Your eye closes. You can't, yeah, anyway. So don't go poking, don't go poking God's eye. Doesn't end well. Okay, we'll leave it there. Next week, we'll talk about this which is a very interesting few words, these wise men. And then we'll go on to chapter 7. Okay, let's pray. And then we, can, then we can go. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that whatever's going on in our lives, Lord, we can trust that you're in control, um, that you do work all things together for good. And that even when everything seems to be going wrong or seems to be unfair, we have, we have all of eternity for you to make things fair. That whatever we seem to have or don't have in this life is absolutely, as Paul says, incomparable. It's meaningless in contrast to the unbelievable privilege and joy it is to know you and to, and, and to know that we are going to know you for all of eternity. I ask that you would help to give us that perspective in our lives, Lord. Help us to trust you, to be patient, um, and to, to live right, Lord, to do the right thing, to be kind, to be loving, to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, because it's you that we're serving and, and nobody else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.